Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. And we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. School privatization is still bad. The IBEW fights for good jobs in Birmingham, and there are good union jobs available in North Alabama and just a reminder, the boss is is responsible for inflation, not the workers. And you know what? We've got more on today's program. If you want to be a part of the program, you can give us a call. We've got a phone number. That is 844-899-TVLR. 844-899-8857. You can call or text during the program, and you can also leave us a voicemail throughout the week, and we might play it on the radio during the next program. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, uh, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, you can find us online. We are all over the place, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on YouTube, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, all at the Valley Labor Report. And just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of revenue comes directly from our listeners in the form of monthly donations. So if you want to help us stay on the air, then you can become a sustaining member of the program or make a one-time donation at unionly.io slash o slash tvlr. That is unionly.io slash o slash tvlr. Or you can go to patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. But I will say say that the unionly processing fee is lower than the Patreon fee, and unionly is a union business that uh, supports unions, labor organization, union businesses, things like that. So uh, that's a good way to make sure more of your money goes towards what you're wanting it to go towards, which is supporting the show, but also supporting a union business. Uh, and if you're a member of a union, then you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. Um, so first up, we've got Brother Bill Blackman on the line. Bill is the business agent of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, and they are putting in the work down in Birmingham. So, Bill, thanks for speaking to us today. I appreciate it. Hey, glad to be on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. I saw in Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, that the IBEW is, they are organizing some folks at an electrical co-op in Marshall County. Um, it's local It's local 443, so I don't know how, but, but were you aware of that? Uh, absolutely, I am. Uh, it is, uh, 443 handles the outside 
jurisdiction for this part of the state. And that's why they're uh, the ones organizing this group. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we're- have filtered three million Tony Quillen and, and, and all to get to the right people. But they're there now and ready to go. That's fantastic. That is really great. I saw that in the newsletter this week, and I was like, oh, hey, I love to see Alabama in the newsletter. That's awesome. So um, first, let's uh, we're going to talk about your apprenticeship program and a responsible bidder ordinance that y'all are pushing through. And let's let's figure out what's going on with the responsible bidder ordinance first. Um, I was trying to do some research, uh, some, some prep yesterday for like figuring out what's going on, what the state of it was. And basically the only thing that I could find, like I couldn't find any local news articles about it. The only thing that I could find was your interview on America's Workforce uh, radio podcast with Ed Flash Ferentz back in September. Um, And that's a union talk radio program in Ohio. Uh, Has local media spoken to you about this at all and it's just not showing up? or, Or do they not, is there nobody really covering this? There, there's really nobody covering it. Welcome to this. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a case of uh, uh, we're trying to push something positive here. Uh, the responsible bidder ordinance, basically what it would say is that any of uh, the city of Birmingham's uh, tax dollars that were spent on, on, on capital projects, construction projects, would uh, have to those contractors and subcontractors would have to participate in a Department of Labor accredited apprenticeship. Uh, for years, we've heard these commercials about losing the craftsmen. We've seen the dirty jobs programs and the Go Build Alabama commercials, mm-hmm. all that. But nothing fun- that funnels you into an, uh, a Department of Labor accredited apprenticeship. You wind up learning tasks and not learning to be a craftsman when you when when you're not in a full-fledged indentured apprenticeship. So uh, the idea here is to create uh, opportunities to learn a craft uh, because it takes on the job training. It takes those things. When the city of Birmingham invests, they should be investing into their citizens as well to create these craftsmen. Right. And that's the premise that I'm selling it on to the uh to the city council, and I've gotten some great uh, assistance from uh, Mayor Woodford. I've gotten some great assistance from uh, the Earl Hilliard, who is Mayor Woodford's chief of governmental affairs, and uh, it, it it's it's progressing. That is, um, I the one of the most common sense things to me is when we're talking about spending tax dollars on. Uh, on projects, there should be strings attached, and some of the most common sense strings should be uh, good wages, good benefits, and proper training. And this goes to that that latter part of it, the the learning a trade through a Department of Labor accredited apprenticeship program. Talk to us about the difference between a DOL accredited apprenticeship and a non DOL uh, 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 accredited apprenticeship. Well, DOL has been in place for a long time, and, uh, and not to cut the state of Alabama short in any means here either. They they have uh, developed the Alabama Office of Apprenticeship (AOA) uh, 
that is actually becoming our go-between between us and, and the Federal Department of Labor and uh, has been great to work with so far and, and, and look forward to a long relationship with them as well. But uh, it, it sets standards in place that uh, gives you a well-balanced, well-rounded uh, training in, an, in a particular craft and in, in industry that uh, rather than some of these others that may just train you for a task. Hmm. You know, uh, you spend your career uh, and, and learn nothing but uh, how to pull wire. Right. And not what to do with that wire when you get it there or how to hook it up or the principle behind how to make this conveyor belt run, how to make it turn off at the right time, that sort of thing. Why do you think that... Why do you think that this isn't this this ordinance isn't in basically every municipality or even as a statewide thing already? Because this just seems this seems like a like a common sense kind of thing. Well, maybe that's it because it is a common sense kind of thing. Uh, in all honesty, I mean the the, the state of Alabama is well. We're such a red state. We call our team the Crimson Tide. Hmm. Uh, we we uh, are business friendly. Uh, we are uh, uh, right to work for less. Mm-hmm. Uh, state that has always thought the way to uh, attract business is to kiss their tail, mm-hmm. and uh, so maybe that's why because uh, the the contractors the the union contractors. In my case, NECA, National Electrical Contractors Association, they have chosen to be union. Mm. They have chosen this path. Uh, They invest in this apprenticeship so that these apprenticeships do not cost tuition. They do not cost uh, the the kids anything but their time and their time to learn. Uh, They buy books, but they'll have those books to refer to throughout their career. Right. Um, that other than that, it doesn't cost them anything uh, because the employers see the value and they invest back into it. Um, it it's a based on a per man hour work contribution. So the more we work, the more we can afford to train people, the better we can afford to train people. Right, right. And so with the, the city of Birmingham, what we're telling them is we've got – probably fluctuating somewhere around a hundred applicants at any one time with the zip codes in the city of Birmingham that we don't have a place to put to work, Hmm. but you still see these crane powers popping up all over downtown Birmingham. Mm -hmm. We're not requiring, uh, and not just the electrical crafts, but all crafts. Right. I just happen to be the squeaky wheel that's, it's making the noise right now. Right. Well, you know, speaking of making the noise, you, you I mentioned that this that, that interview that you did with Flash was back in September, uh, and you, you mentioned that it hasn't passed yet. When do you when do you think that uh, y'all are going to be able to get that passed? There's a diversity study that that's going on right now that that probably will when it comes out in the next few weeks will 
highest responsible better ordinance to and and push it on through so i expect it sometime very soon i was hoping to have it by now, but right. you know anytime you're you're lobbying for something as long as you're continuing that forward momentum then then we're in good shape well that's that's great uh glad to hear that and so let's shift to your apprenticeship program then um Break it down for me. What's the what's the kind of general overview? You you got somebody that's like, what are you talking about? Your IBEW one thirty six apprenticeship program. What do you tell people? Okay, it, it's a five year program. Uh, you uh, earn while you learn. Like I said just a minute ago, there is no tuition. If you complete our program, we have a deal worked out with uh, uh, the, some of the. Uh, state colleges around where you'll have you'll end up with uh, 50 I think it's either 52 or 54 credit hours towards a two year degree uh, there's a, another deal with the University of Alabama where you could take that credits implied I, I believe you get 40 something hours credit towards a four year degree um, basically the two year degree You've got everything you need when you graduate, except your English classes and, uh, you know, those kind of things that as a building trades apprenticeship, we're not going to dig into and teach. Mm -hmm. Nobody has to write an essay on, you know, something for the, for our apprenticeship. Right. But if you, if you so choose to go that route, you can actually even get a two year degree that way. Uh, it's a fantastic program. Uh, it carries you through uh, absolutely not knowing what a screwdriver is all the way through to, uh, you know, there, there's nothing in the electrical industry that should intimidate you, mm -hmm. that you shouldn't be able to figure out and move on and, and, and actually deal with. Uh, in the process of that, uh, you take uh, classes uh, in the different parts of our industry we've got motor control labs we've got transformer labs fire alarm labs that sort of thing and as you progress through there you're taking uh these classes and then going back and doing a uh apprentice competency test so that uh, there are photographic evidence that that you have obtained uh the knowledge level that you're you're that is necessary in this in this particular field and that's always there that's something nobody can take away from you mm -hmm. it's matt dudley's our director and he has taken what was a warehouse facility over by the airport for fedex we bought that building several years ago and he has turned it into a top-notch school and and i'd be happy to let anybody tour that place and put it up against any other school craft training school in the state of Alabama. Yeah. I, Does a fantastic job. And and you mentioned that, that y'all bought it. And that's one of the things that, that I feel like is so, um, so, so cool about the trades apprenticeship programs is that, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to the trades getting taxpayer funding for their apprenticeship program, but the fact of the matter is that, that they don't. They have, like, their own buildings, they have their own instructors, they have, uh, you know, it, it is the trade unions 
pay for pay for it all 100% whereas a lot of these even some of these non-union apprenticeship programs they actually do their training in we, we talked a couple weeks ago about this non-union apprenticeship program they're partnering with Calhoun Community College and what does that mean that's a taxpayer subsidy for a non-union apprenticeship program that is ultimately going to cost the apprentice tuition and and they're going to end up making less money in the long term. I mean, it, it, and with the, less training, yeah, frankly, less, less training, more costs to the taxpayer on both ends because you're subsidizing their education, and then the low wages on the other end because you're going to have to pay for benefit pro government benefit programs for these people who can't afford. You know, it's just the the union apprenticeship programs are really really uh, an an amazing example of workers coming to like workers providing for workers and and lifting each other up and i i and so can you talk about the the type of benefit packages like what can an apprentice expect to make and receive as benefits during their apprenticeship and then after they graduate yeah with with us i can speak on the IBEW. i'm not up to date on other crafts and other locals in our area and what they're their plans are uh, for uh, us a brand new green uh, never been on an electrical project doesn't know what a screwdriver is uh, starts out at 50% of a journeyman wage uh, he'll uh, earn uh, single coverage insurance at first for the first year uh, that is contractor paid for he earns, uh, after his second year, starts to earn family coverage insurance so that as a young man, he can afford to get married, afford to start building a family. Mm-hmm. Um, we have um, two defined benefit pensions and one defined contribution pension that they will all participate in. Uh, one of the two defined benefit uh, pensions is attached to his dues payment. A portion of his dues payment goes to it. But the other is uh, a 100% contractor contribution where 3% of his gross wages goes in. And it's based on number of hours worked each year as to earn in a year of service credit. And at the end of his career, they add up all his service credits and uh, pay him a monthly uh, check for the rest of his life based on those number of years of service credits. And then we have a defined contribution and it slowly increases. Uh, That contribution rate slowly increases as he progresses through the apprenticeship and all the way up to journeyman, steadily getting larger uh, each year based on an hourly, uh, each man hour they work and they have a contribution that goes into it. Over the 40 years, this is the Southern Electrical Retirement Fund that it's deposited into. And over the 40 years that it's 42, 43 years it's been in in, in existence, it averages somewhere around just below 8% interest that is paid every year on average over that. So uh, just figuring that by the time you uh, you, you – work 40 hours a year through your career going at 20 years old very easily you're you're ready to retire as a millionaire 
with that with that fund if it you know mm-hmm. hangs that average uh, right continues on and, and 40 years is a pretty good pretty good look back to say that's a that's a realistic average for us to expect from it now yeah and and what's y'all's what's y'all's journeyman wage at local 136 German wage at 136 currently is $27 an hour, but we're in negotiations now for the next, uh, hopefully, a three-year agreement. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, let us know how those uh, negotiations go for sure. Um, and so I, I appreciate your time, Bill. Uh, definitely keep us in the loop on those negotiations and the responsible bid, bidder ordinance once it passes. We'll want to talk about that. Thank and, you for, for pushing the responsible bidder. Yeah. Uh, I think that's like both of y'all said, it's just such common sense. It's something that regardless of your politics, you know, whether you're Republican, Democrat or something else, we all want highly trained, competent people doing the work. And mm-hmm. we all want our tax dollars to support uplifting the community and this is this is a great way to do all that so appreciate your work on that especially when you start to think about the fact that hey i'm gonna put my kids to bed Mm -hmm. house that was wired by somebody do i want it to be a craftsman or do i want it to have been just somebody that was task trained yeah right you know every every night you go to sleep you 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 trust that it's gonna not interfere with you yeah that's to get a haircut, to, to, to go into business doing haircutting, you got to get a license. And it's not so much that way for the yeah. for the elect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Well, thank you for working to. Yeah, thanks for working to raise those standards. Yeah, thanks, Bill. You guys do a fantastic job here with with putting out the labor's voice in our area, and I very, very, very much appreciate it, and can't put into words just just how important what you guys are doing is so thank you very much thank thanks you. bill appreciate thanks so it much. uh that was bill blackman business agent for ibew international brotherhood of electrical workers local 136 i wanted to mention really quick before we went to the next topic um there was a study out of the illinois economic policy institute about union construct union apprenticeship programs versus non-union apprenticeship programs for construction workers and it was really amazing listen to this quote the labor market outcomes of union construction workers are competitive with workers with college degrees while non-union construction workers are only on par with workers with high school diplomas. What does that mean? Union construction workers earn about $60,000 a year on average, which is 46% more than non-union construction workers at $40,000 a year. 89% of union construction workers have health insurance compared with just 55% of non-union construction workers with workers, which is a 34% difference. And among all workers with associates degrees and bachelor's degrees, average incomes range from 48000 to 68000 And private health insurance coverage ranges from 84% to 90%. So that these are, you know, when we're talking about these DOL accredited apprenticeship programs, a lot of those are going to be, most of those are going to be union apprenticeship programs. And the benefit for the workers is is just what I laid out for you there. It's very I mean, clear. a union construction worker is going to be making about what a uh, what a what somebody with a bachelor's degree does. And you cannot. And you know, all these people they go around to high schools and they talk about oh, the trades are a path to the middle class. Trades are a path to the to the middle class. And it's like there's a there's an asterisk there 
Because if you're a non-union construction worker, we talked a couple weeks ago about how something like 50% of non-union construction workers are on some sort of government assistance. Non-union construction work is not necessarily a path to the to the middle class, but union construction work is, and that's why we want to push that. So thanks again, Bill, for taking the time to talk yeah, to us. Yeah, and I know we're going to touch on schools later, mm-hmm. so I, w- I won't belabor the point, but this is an, uh, just another good time yes. to remind folks that our schools need to be working with folks like Bill to get these young folks who are you know in high school into this pipeline so yep. that they can enter – a real accredited apprenticeship and have those opportunities you just laid out. Yep. Um, So the United Launch Alliance is a rocket manufacturer with a facility in Decatur, Alabama. They are unionized and have been for years, their manufacturing staff at least, and the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers Local Launch 44 represents more than 350 manufacturing workers at the Decatur facility, and their contract negotiations Uh, negotiations are coming up. Their current contract expires in May. I think it's May 1. Every union is going to do this a bit differently, but the machinists going into into negotiations, they have a strike sanction vote, which basically empowers the bargaining committee to recommend a strike if negotiations stall, um, which then has to be improved by the membership again. Okay, So if they go into negotiations, the bargaining committee, and negotiations stall the company is not uh budging and then this strike sanction vote enables them to recommend to the membership a strike which the membership has to approve again basically so they've got two votes to to actually go through with a strike so you can't say that the machinist <laughs> indicator that that some big union boss is telling them to strike because that's right. not true well for the first time in the locals 20 year history one Hundred percent of the members of Local Forty Four Indicator voted yes in the strike sanction vote. Wow! Unanimous. Not a single member voted against the strike sanction vote. It's hard to find a hundred percent agreement on on any whether the sun is shining. Yeah. So that's awesome. So- <laughs> I know that members indicator are very unhappy with the company right now, partly because of the way that they dealt with the situation around vaccination, which we've talked about multiple times on the show. Uh, but a unanimous strike sanction vote is a very, very powerful bargaining chip going to the table. Um, David Story, founding father of the Valley Labor Report, is the current president of the local. And I asked him if he had any statement for us since we were going to talk to it, talk about it today. And um, he said... They'll give us what we want or and I'm going to have to end the quote there because the rest of it is not (laughs) it's not radio friendly. But uh, suffice it to say is they'll regret it. The company will regret it is uh, is one way to say it. He said that, quote, they've made concessions in the last four contracts uh, in an effort to be competitive with SpaceX Four the last four contracts. So we're talking about 15 20 years the last four contracts they've made concessions and he said there will be no concessions on this contract there will be no concessions we'll have a reasonable contract or they'll be working the lines with office staff so and we saw how great that worked out with john deere right right (laughs) so we'll of course be bringing you some updates as the story develops and i'm planning to do a couple interviews uh in the company coming months talking to their stewards committee for one and i'm really excited for that interview because uh ula has been flooding the unit in an effort to uh dilute the union density um 
so uh, uh, so the the stewards committee has been having to go like really really hard organizing these new members, um, and they have re- they have got basically every single new hire into the union except for three, and so what that means is at this in this local where the bargaining unit is over 350 members. They have three new hires who are not members of the union, and they have three scabs who are not members of the union. People who are not... Those scabs are not allowed back in the union because they crossed the picket line in 2018, is my understanding. So, to... uh be representing almost like 350, 400 workers and only have like six to 10 people that are not members of the union in a right to wreck state like Alabama. That's huge. They're doing something right over there at uh, the Machinist Union 44 indicator. Um, so th- that's really exciting. And I also want to talk to the bargaining committee about the specific issues that they're going to be fighting for. So we're going to be talking about that over the next couple months. I just wanted to bring you that update really quick. Um, we are going to be talking to, in just a second, William Cardenas. He is an organizer for the Laborers International Union of North America. Uh, but first, we're going to go to a break. We will be right back. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower-than-average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. IBW 558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know how viable clean and renewable energy is, and to that end, 
Energy Alabama has provided instruction to thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state, and they are working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about their work and how you can join at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. If you want to call or text the show, you can. Um, We've got on the line now... William Cardenas. He is an organizer with the Laborers International Union of North America. Um, William, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Hey, good morning, Jacob. It's uh, an honor to be here. Good morning. Good morning. I appreciate your time. So uh, let's talk. uh, Can can you talk to us about um, why you do the work that you do really quickly before we start talking about the the job openings in the area like how did you come to this line of work where that you you've got uh the laborers international union sending you all across the country <laughs> well i gotta say um i'm very grateful for my union i had children very young i didn't graduate college um and i found making money with my hands is something that i enjoyed i joined the union 21 years ago february 18 of 2002 and um it's been a really good experience I, I became a shop steward i got a lot of leadership development uh through opportunities through both the afl through their clc program and then also with my own union i was able to take some organizing training and i've been pretty good at what i do thank god i've been able to make connections across the country but somebody seen something in me that i did not see i was given the opportunity to learn how to put people and resources together. And um, it's been a great experience. And now I'm a regional organizer, a couple of nine states for Layuna. I'm a member of an organizing committee called DROC. And we cover from Ohio to the Florida Keys. Uh, it's about nine states. 
And so we focus on recruitment, uh, NLRB style organizing, pressure campaigns, advocacy. And uh, I just love the work that I do and the opportunity to really help people. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's exactly how I feel. I'm really thankful to be able to uh, to be able to do it. Although I um, not sure that I would want to be staff because y'all have to do y'all y'all are working all the time. I mean, uh, like the good good staff, good union staff um, is not difficult to come by, and they work all the time around the clock where um, since, since I've got a different job and all my positions are volunteer, I don't get paid for anything that I do. I can just basically say like, oh yeah, I did this one thing for you. You're welcome. Okay. I'm doing it for free, but you're, uh, you, you actually have some sort of a, a, a bit more commitment to the membership than, <laughs> than people like me who do it for volunteers. So I appreciate your work. Um, folks like you are really important. So and William, where are you coming from? Where, where's home for you? Yeah. So I live in Port St. Lucie, Florida. I'm a member of Local 1652, which is based out of South Florida. And uh, I've been been had the honor and privilege to work with Labor's Local 366 for the last three months out of Sheffield, Alabama. But I'm actually home today. Okay. Well, I, I could tell that you weren't necessarily from around here uh, when you started talking. But uh, always great to have folks come visit the South and, and work with us. So... I say my time in Alabama has been amazing. The people, the food, uh, let let there be no mistake. The labor movement is alive here in Alabama. Hell yeah. Jacob, thank you. Uh, we did some house calls a couple of weeks ago. And uh, mm. I'm telling you, there's a movement here that people just don't recognize and they need to. Yeah, Will came with us when the council, when the labor council went down to make house calls with RWDSU. Will came, um, and and I, I appreciate him coming. Maybe he'll come with us next Saturday when we go. We'll see. Um, so, Will, here's a question: Why is it important enough for Lyuna to bring you in to try to spread the news about these job openings and stuff? Like, why not just fill the jobs that you can? And then let non-union contractors take the rest of them. Like, why is it important that that uh, you know that that you, trade unions try to increase their market share? So, one, it's about standards, safety, retirement with dignity. Um, a, a good union job, you have respect on the job. The same way the contractor or the company has a contract with whoever they do business with, we believe that. Us as workers, as labor, we deserve the same rights as uh, anybody they do business with. In particular, in in certain cases where there's a huge project, uh, we just come in and assist the local with their efforts, right? So everything from social media to hitting every barbershop, laundromat, uh, community center. I mean, you know, just building, helping the local build those bridges is what they bring me in for. And hopefully those uh, bridges to the community and that pipeline or workforce uh, stays intact. Uh, there's a lot of times where you just need that extra phone call to motivate people to come in. You need that house call to really understand the issues and see if this this is the union for them. My union in particular, we do very hard, dirty, dangerous work uh, most of the time, and it's not for everybody. And so if I can help and assist people that are already doing that work to jump on board and um, hopefully have an opportunity that'll be their last job, like a career, right. is, is what our goal is. So what are the jobs that you're here, um, that, that you're uh, stationed in Alabama, talking about, trying to make people aware of? So right now, the Browns Ferry Nuclear Plant, uh, 
they were looking to recruit about a hundred new members. And I think I need to say this first. Um, when we accept somebody into our union, they become part of our family for the business manager and the staff of that, you know, that team that holds that local down. Uh, that's another family that has to be fed. We need to make sure that we can keep these people working. And so to add a hundred people to our list or out of work list, uh, it's not an easy task. It has to be the right type of candidate. But we were recruiting for the, uh, it's not just for the Browns Ferry nuclear plant, but for the nuclear maintenance industry. So this particular candidate would have to be willing to travel, would have to have a clean background, would have to have some construction experience, uh, must be reliable, right? We train 85 classifications of work. Uh, we are the laborers, but we do a lot of work mm-hmm. and, um, want to make sure people know what they're doing and they're committed to coming in. When somebody shows up uh, one day and doesn't show up the next day, it's a, it's a skid mark on the rest of us that carry the light in the name brand. Right. And we've been having a really hard, difficult time in just recruiting and retention. Uh, people are just union members on payday. And part of my job is to change that culture, right? To have that union culture. You're not just a union member on payday. You're a union member every day. It's about solidarity and hmm. being a professional at work. And so these jobs aren't like, you, you know, you mentioned these are not like apprenticeship jobs. These are these are jobs where you're looking to bring people into the union who have experience in the industry, right? Correct. Gotcha, gotcha. So um, it's at the Browns Ferry Nuclear Plant. What kind of work are they going to be doing? And um, and and uh, what can they expect for the compensation and, and stuff like that? So um, some of the work that we do at the plants are as follows. We do everything from haul watch, fire watch, um, flagging, rigging. We assist all the other trades in handling their material. We do site prep, site cleanup. We do some custodial work. Um, we also do some concrete demolition work, concrete work when possible. Um, you know, we do a little bit of everything, you know, we are the first ones on the job, the last ones on the job and compensation wise, our rates start at 2143 an hour. And, um, depending on your skill set, you can, that's the minimum, mm-hmm. you know, you can go up from there. Right. And it's what seven if- days a week. I'm oh, sorry, no, no, Jacob, I'm sorry. Keep the, going. Uh, these outages, they, they're like a tune-up to the nuclear plant, mm-hmm. and so it requires a lot of manpower. Every trade is bringing in a ton of people. Uh, we're going to have 125 to 150 laborers on this project. They'll be working seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day, or six tens, which is six days a week, 10 hours a day. So uh, a lot of people are scared to work those hours, but believe me, when you get that check, it really uh, motivates you to keep coming back. Yeah. And you mentioned that the, the that for y'all uh, specifically, the benefits is really where, as far as compensation goes, the union uh, the the union difference is really found in in this area at least. Can you talk about y'all's benefit package versus um, somebody who's doing the same work with a non union contractor could expect? So if you get twenty one forty three on the check, uh, you can add seven to eight dollars on top of that that go into your benefits. So. Some of it goes into training so that you have free training to upgrade your skills. Uh, you have money that goes into your pension, which is uh, is federally secure, which means that no matter what happens, you will get money when you go to retire. Uh, with us, it's five years, thousand hours of a thousand hours equals one credit per year, um, and then your benefits. I mean, I have five children. I've been in the union. I've never had uh, issue with my medical insurance. 
So that's something that's huge, you know, uh, just having family supporting uh, medical benefits and a retirement to look forward to on top of decent pay. Yeah, that's and and the non-union uh, non-union contractors in this industry, the benefits are, are like not there, right? Correct. Uh, just to give you an idea, I've been in Alabama for three months. I probably spoke to over four hundred and twenty-five workers, and a lot of people I talk to they work for non-union. Co- I mean, the majority of the workforce is non-union here. And if I get an opportunity to interview somebody, I try to find out where did you work, how were the conditions. And a lot of people do not have retirement to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make more money in the check sometimes, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of wage theft issues. Right. If you're an immigrant worker, uh, there are issues that that really hurt them and their families, and they're sort of forced to work in unsafe conditions. Plus, uh, you know, you don't have insurance, so when you mm-hmm. go, some people just don't go to the doctor. You know, they rather just stay home and stick it out. And fortunately, with COVID. Uh, and some of the other things that are going on, it's it's dangerous. You know, at least with us, they have the opportunity to go and get get seen. Where do people go if they want to find out more if they're interested in applying for this job? So, Labor's Local 366 has a website. It's L-I-U-N-A, Layuna, local366.com. Uh, you can also come in person if you're interested. We have a location in Sheffield, uh, which is 1405 Shop Pike, Sheffield, um, Ray Dawson is the business manager. He's uh, been a laborer for almost 30 years. Uh, I trust that man with my life. Uh, I'm proud to work shoulder to shoulder with him and his team. And uh, they're looking to expand their market share. Without market share, uh, your wages are tanked, hmm. your benefits are tanked. And uh, that's something that we are 100% looking to increase in this area. Yep. Glad to hear it. Liuna366.com. Yes, William, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hey, Jacob, I'd like to say one more thing real quick. Absolutely. Go for it. Uh, You're talking about responsible bidders ordinances. I've been able to work on two successful RBOs in Florida in states like Alabama, Florida, Georgia, where they have these preemption laws where no matter what we do, it seems to get knocked down by the state legislature. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have something that can incorporate a CIP, a city infrastructure plan or a uh, county infrastructure plan, you can really uh, add some regulations to that that help working class people. And uh, I think a goal for Lyon is to really uh, get our apprenticeship up and running here in the state of Alabama. And that's where you're going to have people that are loyal to the union, mm-hmm. that understand the cause. And these are soldiers for the movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll leave you with that. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Jacob. I'm a big fan of this show. So uh, keep up the good work. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Lyuna366.com. Um, so I had an idea for a segment that's basically like, I listened to talk radio this week, so you don't have to. And here's a very dumb thing that I heard. Um, if y'all are interested in making that a regular thing, then let me know. But, uh, this week I heard a few dumb things and we may be talking about another one of them later in the show, but I wanted to use this to, to, to jump it off as, as a jumping off point to talk about inflation um so adam let's go ahead and just play the clip the minimum wage clip all righty kidding all right prince william what are you hating on i'm hating on all the people that are uh, that at first thought that amazon was the standard raising their minimum wage and okay hold on giving their employees Who more benefits and like that? oh this is Who? the company that we can Who are the people turn, that he's know, talking th- about turning into the company that. we want to be the 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 role model and then 
Amazon's just like, watch this. And, and they've raised their prices of Prime membership. Now, starting next month, it'll be like $20, $30 more for Prime membership for the year, $2 a month. And uh, everyone's like, what happened? How could Amazon do this? Why, why are they doing this? And they just don't understand that this always happens. This is why raising minimum wage is stupid, because the company is not going to lose their profit margins that they had before. They're just going to raise prices, and people don't understand that. It's, it's ridiculous. All right, so ridiculous. First uh, of all, I mean, who Amazon is Prime the person that he's responding who, to here that thinks that when Amazon said they were going to raise their minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, were like groveling at their like I don't I don't even I, who did that? That's not like that's a minimum. That's like okay, you're paying your workers for warehouse work. $30,000 a year. Like, oh, wow, congrats. Um, I, I may be jumping ahead of you, Jacob, but I'm just so sick of hearing that argument about the minimum wage. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it really applies to wages in general. Yeah. And you've heard that since time immemorial. Since oh, the right, minimum right. wage was instituted in the 1930s, you've been hearing this argument. Uh, it's. I will say that it's true what he said about Amazon doesn't want to lose their profit margins. Well, of course, that's that's true. Um, but if we just accept this argument, well, if we raise wages, the company will just raise prices and it'll all wash out. Well, then what's the point of ever raising wages, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, by that, the extension is we should never raise the minimum wage or anybody's wages or anybody's wages because yeah. oh well you know capital will just eat that mm-hmm. up um so we're just hostage yeah i, I suppose is so, is what they're proposing right i mean you know look uh, william the guy here he's like a young guy i think he's younger than me and like i don't necessarily fault him for thinking these things because that's what we're taught here we're taught and, you know, especially if you work in a conservative talk radio station. And if you've never challenged yourself or had others challenge you, then, you know, it's not surprising that you're going to think the same thing as literally everybody else that you've ever met in your life. Okay. You know, and, and we're taught basically that anytime there's a problem in society, the reason for that problem is the little people. Are wages going down? It's the immigrants. Somebody got hurt at work? She could have worked safer. Education's bad. It's probably the teachers. When prices go up, it's probably the workers rolling in their $30,000 a year. That's probably what's happening. And now when you say it like that, I do think that you can start to see how absurd this line of logic is. But let's investigate it a little bit further. How much profits... Did Amazon make last year before they raised their prime membership price, which is what he was talking about, which is why he said he's saying they don't want to lose their profits. So they're raising the front. They don't want to lose profits from the higher wages that they're paying right now. And so they're going to they're going to raise the prime price. How much profits did Amazon make last year? Thirty three point four billion dollars in 2021 alone that's money that's profits for an econ 101 lesson for everybody out there profits is the money that's left over after everything else is paid for if you gave just half of that half of that to the workers in the form of a wage increase 
you could give every single Amazon employee in the world, all 1.3 million of them, a $6 an hour raise. If you just take half of those profits, that means you've still got over $15 billion that's just sitting there. That's like not been used on anything. That's before the prime price increase. What about the $30 million that they spent just last year fighting one union campaign in Bessemer, Alabama? Those union busters made hundreds of dollars an hour, not 15. But of course, they're not going to be blamed on the Dale Jackson show. It's the workers making $30,000 a year. And I think it's also revealing uh, that folks identify as a consumer first and not right. part of a working class. Yeah, And that's by design. Yeah, of course, of course. Let's play this clip from a More Perfect Union video last year about this issue. Let's look at some corporate earnings calls. That's where companies tell investors how much money the company is making and their plans to make more. A study by Bank of America found that these reports mentioned inflation 1,100% more in the second quarter of 2021 than in the previous year. But while they blame inflation for rising prices, the largest corporations in America have never made more money. The Wall Street Journal reported that two out of three of the biggest U.S. publicly traded companies had larger profit margins this year than they did prior to the pandemic in 2019. Nearly 100 of these massive corporations reported profits in 2021 that are 50% above profit margins in 2019. This is a clip from the 2021 third quarter earnings of Tyson, the meat processor whose chicken you might have in your freezer. We have increased prices to help offset significant raw material and supply chain cost inflation. Pricing's improved nearly 16% in the quarter versus the comparable period last year. Some quick business talk translation. When he says pricing improved, he means Tyson was happy to raise prices. And that was good news for Tyson shareholders. Tyson's wants people like you and me to believe that they were forced to raise prices as a result of inflation. But the company is making almost double what it made the year before. Inflation gave them the excuse they needed to raise prices and reap record profits. Here's legendary investor Warren Buffett explaining that businesses are finding they can simply raise prices without it hurting their sales. It's very interesting. I mean, it, it, we're raising prices. People are raising prices to us. Uh, and Yeah. So, the, I mean, there we have the, three out of the four of these uh, 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 of these companies. They had 50 percent higher profits, higher profits. In 2020 than in 2019. This was a video that was made in 2021. They're raising these prices after record profits. And then they're blaming it on the they're blaming the wage hike or or the price hike on higher wages. They made more profits, 50 percent more. And then they raise the prices. And they put out press releases saying we're raising prices because of wages. And people like William on the Dale Jackson show and people like Dale Jackson just regurgitate it. They just say, oh, the boss said it. I, man, I don't know. I guess it's true. 
I guess it's true. The boss said it. I guess it's true. To bring it back to that first clip, these people are pissing down our backs, and the folks on the Dale Jackson show are telling us it's raining. It's just, it's insane. And something we mentioned uh, off the air this morning was talking about monopoly power in the way in which that is is so impacting this inflation uh, phenomena, but it's really been left out of the conversation. When you have companies like Tyson that dominate their industry, dominate the market share, they don't have the competition. Right. You know, Amazon can raise their prices because where, where are we going to go? You know, yeah. Amazon has a, a, a bigger... Uh, you know, profit share and a bigger dominance in the industry than, you know, than some country's entire GDP. Mm-hmm. It's it's so I, I think that's also worth remembering that as the decades have progressed, we've had a concentration in industry after industry after industry. I mean, whether it's cat food, chicken nuggets. Um, you know, right. clothing products, beer, cigarettes, you name it, chances are there's about two or three companies that control the overwhelming majority of the market. Yeah. So, but again, you don't hear that being discussed as right. part of inflation. <laughs> right. You know, you're, maybe they're pointing to, you know, real life things such as uh, COVID and uh, some of the supply chain issues that have in part resulted from COVID, but also mm-hmm. because of, uh, you know, another factor here is the just-in-time manufacturing and distribution model. Right. Where And, and so companies have over time changed practices to try to squeeze out every little drop of profit they can without any consideration for, you know, long-term planning, right? Mm-hmm. Most capitalists don't think beyond the next quarter. Right. So – you know, they have low inventories. They have very complex, complicated uh, shipping and distribution mechanisms that span multiple countries. And that may be slightly more profitable in an average quarter, but right. throw in a worldwide pandemic and that sort of changes things. Exactly. Exactly. Let's go ahead and go to a break, and uh, we will be right back. And we're going to talk about school privatization and why. Like all privatization, it's bad. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. They have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and they secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about their work advocating for customers and to join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW 558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW 558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW 558.org. 
The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855 617 9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855 617 9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a proud sponsor of the Valley Labor Report, and we are here to help keep you in the loop on the assault on your right to protest, picket, and peaceably assemble in Alabama. The anti-protest bill is back this year, and it's as bad as ever. There is huge interest in building worker power and increasing unionization in Alabama that has corporations scared. Don't let their influence on our state legislators become another tool to arrest striking workers and union supporters. This racist bill is especially problematic for black organizers and unnecessarily gives law enforcement broad discretion to define even small peaceful gatherings as a riot. Tell your Alabama legislators to say no to House Bill 2. We've set up an easy way for you to do that. You can go to hmtn.link slash hb2 where you'll find more information and an email template you can use right from your smartphone. That link is hmtn.link slash hb2. You'll also find more info on social media at Hometown Action. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.com. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. The Valley Labor Report. We are the only union talk radio program in the state of Alabama. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And um, 
We're going to talk some about school privatization. If you want to get in, the phone number is 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. You can call or text or leave a voicemail throughout the week. Um, so there's a school, uh, a school privatization is in the news in Alabama because of a bill that Republican State Senator Del Marsh has been pushing. Um, the bill is basically a voucher program where uh, students will be given money to uh, parents will be given money to take their children out of public schools and send them to private schools. The bill is estimated to siphon $420 million per year from the Education Trust Fund. Proponents say that this will give disadvantaged children an opportunity to go to a better school, and the competition will improve remaining schools. Opponents say that's not true. (laughs) So Adam is a former educator and a former teacher union staffer. He has been uh, really, really involved in this issue, knows a lot about it. So Adam, like, I'm just going to... Give the reins to you for a little while and talk to us about why privatization is bad in education. Well, I think you start with the assumption that this is about putting private hands into the public coffers. So privatization, ultimately, regardless of industry, whether it's education or you know natural resources uh, or other essential government services, it's about... Hey, pu- we've got ourselves muted. Uh oh. Sorry. Oh my gosh. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so, we are discussing school privatization and why it's bad. So, privatization is about putting uh, public dollars into private hands. And there are so many different ways that they can do that. And, you know, the school vouchers are that's kind of uh, the extreme example in education. But if there is a way to make a profit off of public services, folks have found a way uh, and are always pushing the the envelope. So uh, there's a couple of things here you mentioned in the lead up to this discussion. Uh, For example, Dale Marsh, he is a longtime opponent of public education in this state. He spent the better part of the last decade and a half or so. Uh, doing everything in his power. Uh, most of that time, he was the pro tem of the Senate. He's been using his influence, uh, often backed by out-of-state, billionaire-backed uh, you know, organizations, to attack public schools, to attack public school employees who are about 75% female and disproportionately unionized compared to the private industry and the rest of the country uh, and certainly the rest of the state. And so... He has gone after the employees, gone after the schools, um, and it's all pitched with the idea that maybe you as the individual family or parent or student could benefit from this. And what we're being asked to accept here is that we abandon the concept of public good. We abandon the concept that every child deserves a great public education because that's not what this is promising. I mean, and if you read what they say, they do more or less give that up, that it is maybe you 
as the Jones family, the Smith family, maybe you get to be the winners in this marketplace, this Wild West marketplace of education. Just like maybe you get to be the winner in, in the broader marketplace. Uh, but more often than not, you're probably going to be the loser. Uh but, hey, for those who are already winning, who are already sending their children to private schools, uh, now they get a little subsidy from the state. Mm-hmm. Because that's one of the other pieces to privatization. It's not just about putting public dollars into private hands. It's about concentrating those dollars into the hands that already have plenty of dollars. It's not you know, a redistribution of wealth from the public coffers down to the bottom. Uh, and this is going to be pitched, I know, as a way to help low-income families. Um, and that's a really old trope. Charter school movement, the school voucher movement, and the broader you know, corporate education reform has often couched their rhetoric and their policy proposals in the language of civil rights. They love to find you know, a poor black family that they can put out front in the camera uh, to be the face of what they're really trying to do, which is to enrich themselves, their rich buddies, at the expense of the students and educators and really the broader community. So in state after state where school privatization has advanced farther than Alabama, it has been an absolute disaster for everyone involved except for those making money off of it. You yeah, can, and you can find no evidence where right. where where this is improving student instruction, right. student achievement, and again, that's one of the ostensible reasons behind this pitch. Is uh, I think Del Marsh even mentioned it in one of his early interviews that well, the Alabama is fiftieth in academic rate rankings, and so we just can't accept that. We've got to do something, which is interesting because we're also at or near the bottom of. Every quality of life metric in this state, from incarceration to poverty to health care. Um, just this week, we had a, a, another study indicated that Alabama, I believe, is 49th out of 51 for life expectancy. Now, where's Del Marsh uh, telling us we can't accept that? Right. We might actually provide health care to folks. We might actually have good union jobs available for folks. We might have mental health care for folks. So it's, that is on its surface uh, pretty laughable mm-hmm. that we're supposed to accept that we have to do this because Alabama's ranked so poorly. But we can't extend that logic to any other sector of our economy, of our broader society. Okay, so that's BS. Um, and we also have to remember that when we say that Alabama's ranked, these are rankings based primarily on standardized test scores. And, you know, capitalists love to be able to quantify things, to drill things down to a metric that can be put on a spreadsheet. And education's just not that way. Uh, but they have really tried, especially over the past couple of decades, uh, it amped up a lot after No Child Left Behind was passed in 2001 at the federal level, where it's not so much about teaching, it's about testing. And what you're trying to measure here are these standardized test scores and collect the data so that you can then rank and sort. Uh, you can label some schools failing and some schools successful. Uh, you can label some teachers to be failures and, and others to be successful based on these metrics, which uh, 
there's now you know a plethora of research to to confirm that these standardized tests primarily are indicating demographics. Mm-hmm. You show me a school with very poor standardized test scores. I'm going to show you a school with high poverty. Right. Uh, that you know, there's a lot of talk about the achievement gap, uh, and you know the disparities in student achievement across race and across class. But again, these are not solutions to these issues. The solutions would be an excellent public education mm-hmm. as a foundation for every child in every community. Shouldn't matter what zip code you're in. Shouldn't matter your race. You shouldn't have to move to a new neighborhood. You shouldn't have to go shop the marketplace to get a good education. That should be your right. You right. Should, that should be a fundamental uh, assumption. At the bare minimum, you're going to get a great public education. Uh, and what does that look like? Well, it, it's for one thing, it's the educators themselves running the show mm-hmm. and not bureaucrats uh, a thousand miles away, not private vendors who are selling something. It's educators who actually know their kids, know their communities, know their jobs. Right. And that's the thing that you mentioned that they were promising primarily is that an individual as an individual family might be able to get a better education under this program. And that's even that is dubious. It is. Because the on average voucher students in Milwaukee and and this is basically the same all of these studies are basically the same that that the but but on average voucher students in Milwaukee performed either the same or possibly slightly worse than public school students on state exams even though voucher students are slightly less poor than public student public school students and that is and, the, and, and all of these studies basically show the same thing. There was a couple other uh, studies that I pulled. In Louisiana, after two years in the program, a student who started at the 53rd percentile dropped to 37th percentile in math. By and large, those negative effects persisted through year four. In Indiana, students in the program saw initial dips in math that persisted for four years. An earlier version of the same study found some evidence of a bounce back among students who remained in private schools. The Ohio study showed that even after three years in the program, the negative impacts of using a private school voucher uh, persisted. D.C. tells a slightly different story. They In D.C., they found that students' test scores fell two years into the program, but by year three, they had no clear effect. Some, students, some studies show modest improvement, but the overall trend is clearly that they don't improve even the students who take advantage of the voucher, not to mention the public schools who are left with less funding. Right. And, and this, let's and, talk about that for a sec, uh, on how it impacts those who are left behind. Uh, because when we talk about school choice, it's best to understand that it's the school choosing who they're going to serve. That's mm-hmm. really what they mean by school choice. Because you as a, as a student or as a parent, uh, your choices are going to be still limited by your zip code, your income level, your education background, the resources you have to bring to this decision-making process. Those don't go away just because the state promises you you know, a $5,500 voucher. Uh, nor does it erase the private schools and charter schools' incentive to select their student population in such a way that it's going to be cost-effective uh, and produce the results they want to produce. 
And, and that makes it all the more stunning that, you know, study after study, as you showed, does not show any uh, improvement because these schools in many cases are acti- actively selecting who they are going to serve and who are they who they are going to test. So they've already, you know, sort of picked off the cream of the crop. And and what I mean by that is if you are a student who speaks English as a second or third language, if you are a student with special needs uh, who requires resources, whether that's, you know, additional workers, uh, student, you know, a one-on-one aid or special technology, whatever it may be. You have a student with behavioral issues. These students who, you know, are perhaps harder to educate, uh, more expensive to educate, they find themselves conveniently expelled, counseled out, uh, and pushed out of these programs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, there's already sort of a, a selection in the fact that the the most desperate families often are not going to even be able to enter into this, you know, jump through the hoops to get through to a charter school selection or to a private school voucher. Right. So, you know, again, it and what that leaves the public schools with are all the sc- students that the private and charter schools don't want. Mm-hmm. The ones who are the most difficult, the ones who do require the most help, the ones who are going to perform the poorest on the test scores, which is the end all be all, you know, in the eyes of legislators and, and mainstream media. Right. And and so, Adam, the one of the things that proponents of this bill will say when they hear somebody oppose it, they'll say, you want the status quo. We're 50th or 51st in education, and we don't think that's acceptable. At least we're proposing something, you know. And so, so they say that by opposing this, we're in favor of the status quo, and also that educators have been running uh, the school system for decades, and look where it's got us. Um, do educators run the school system, and do they support the status quo? Uh well, let's say the status quo is a reflection of over 10 years of Republican rule in Montgomery. So if there is, in fact, a status quo that is failing, it is a reflection of Dale Marsh and the people who back him and his colleagues who have implemented the policies we've been under for over a decade. It was them who decided to water down job protections for employees. It was them who decided to water down the pension benefits of employees. And then, lo and behold, we have a tough time recruiting educators and retaining educators. It was them who started the charter schools. They established the private school scholarships. They have funneled hundreds of millions of dollars out of the Education Trust Fund. And this was after some of the steepest cuts in the country in the aftermath of the Great Recession. So all they're bragging these past few years about you know growing the budget and catching up with salary increases, that's just making up for lost time and lost investments uh, in in the several years after the recession. We're just catching up, catching up for the cuts, catching up for inflation. Uh, So it's nothing to brag about. But no, educators do not run the system, uh, nor are are we in favor of the status quo. If we ran things, we would actually have class size limits. We would have real enforceable case size limits for special education teachers and speech pathologists and counselors. We would have more counselors and mental health services. Um, 
we would actually have the people, the warm bodies in the building. And that's typically the greatest expense in your school budgets. It's, it's the warm bodies in the building. Uh, and yes, it comes with cost, but that's what you need to be able to educate kids, especially in a place like Alabama where so many of our kids are coming to us behind. By the time they enter kindergarten, they're already behind many of their peers in wealthier societies, wealthier communities. Um, and so when you have students who are coming to you who have not had quality child care, who you know, may be staying with a grandmama, they may not have stable housing, uh, they may not have two college-educated parents bringing home you know, middle-income salaries, they may not even have reliable health care, they may have never been to a doctor. Um, when you have those kind of students coming to you, it is tougher to get them to, you know, these magical metrics that these folks want to see on these test scores. Yeah. So it's it's really it's a distraction. And, and part of it is, you know, we've we've been in this era of corporate education reform and school privatization for decades now. I mentioned 2001, No Child Left Behind. That's a good watermark. Um and it's very clear it has failed. It has failed by every metric involved with quality of life for the people in our schools, student and teacher. And it has failed our communities. It's failed the taxpayers. The only place it hasn't failed is in the private investors right. and the folks who have made a lot of money off of this. And, you know, here in Huntsville, Huntsville City Schools is ground zero for this kind of uh, garbage uh, across the state where they've outsourced hundreds of jobs, jobs that used to actually go to the public school system, people who had a retirement pension and health care. Yeah, those are all filled by temp agencies now, mm-hmm. where they're paying on pen- pennies on a dollar. They have no rights, no job security, no health care, no retirement. And, and that has happened in section after section after section of our school staffing. Yeah. And you've had millions of dollars funneled into you uh, various consultants and vendors, uh, textbook pub- publishers. So, you know, educators are not in charge. Right. Billionaires, their think tanks, uh, e- te- uh, uh, education technology corporations, Pearson, those are the folks that are in charge. It's not us. And to the extent that we have oversight and input, it is through organizing and it is through the public system. Because we still, in most places, get to elect a public school board. We still have uh, two public budget hearings where we are allowed to go and, and get a copy of the budget and ask questions. And uh, and these folks want to do away with that. Yeah. You know, the Netflix CEO, uh, Hastings, he's a big charter school guy. And he's bragged about he wants to get rid of elected school boards in this country. <laughs> so that's what they're offering is – less input from Mm -hmm. we the people, uh, less buy-in from we the people, and hope that you're one of the lucky winners in the marketplace. But to hell with everybody else. Um, It's obscene, and educators have a a responsibility, I think, to, to share what's really happening with their community, with their neighbors, their friends, their family, uh, so that folks know what's going on and, and aren't as fooled by the propaganda that does come 
well-funded mm-hmm. by the Walton families and the Bill Gateses and the uh, Eli Broads of the world and is then propagated and turned into legislation by the crooks like Dale Marsh. So bottom line, legislation like this has been tried across the country and you do not see the proponents of this bill pushing the results. What you see is a conceptual argument that competition always improves things. You do not see them pointing to the results because the results are not good. The results are not good for the people who take advantage of the voucher program, nor are they good for the people who are left behind in the in in the schools that have less funding. That's just an empirical reality. These programs do not improve performance. Opposing this bill does not mean you're in favor of the status quo. Opposing this bill just means you don't want it to get worse. Absolutely. What, what you uh uh what teachers and educators want are the things like Adam said. And and we can see this if they were actually if they were actually interested in increasing performance in schools instead of interested in advancing an ideological agenda that benefits their corporate donors, what would that they would be pushing the things that actually work. And we can see what actually works in Alabama because there are high poverty schools that perform really, really, really well. And what do they all have in common? Teachers have high expectations for the students and are invested. Teachers take control of the things that they can control. There is plentiful support to help teachers get better at both what they know and how to teach it. Constant assessment of where students are at and what they need help with and leverage of strong community support. Why do they not pass bills that go to those things, that decrease class sizes, that increase staffing in support roles like nursing and counseling and and, uh, student aides? Why don't they advance bills that do this instead of advancing bills that have been shown time and time again to not increase performance for anybody that only increase the performance of the line on an investor's stock portfolio? That's what they're pushing. They're not pushing things that have been proven to actually increase student performance or educator well-being. And that is the issue with this bill. That's why we're opposed to it, and that's why everybody else should be opposed to it. Improve education, not deteriorate it. Yeah, and and before we end, I I think we'd be remiss to not mention the other major piece of this uh, beyond pure profit is segregation. Oh, right, it's right. not a coincidence that school vouchers uh, came in the aftermath of Brown versus Board. Uh, it's not a coincidence that these church schools and segregation academies, uh, you know, became very obsessed with leveraging tax credits and, and t- uh, government support for what they were doing, which is segregation. And that segregation by just not just race, but by class, by ability, by language, by ethnicity, religion. Um, we can't move backwards. Yeah. This is a this is moving backwards. This is rolling back the status quo. Exactly. Exactly. Uh so we're wrapping up here on the radio. Um we don't have time to play that voicemail, but we got a voicemail from Joe uh, thanking us for our participation in the DSA for UMWA fundraiser. We appreciate your voicemail, Joe, and uh and and that kills two birds with one stone. You can go back and watch the fundraising stream or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts, and you can leave us a voicemail, 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. 
give us money unionly.io slash o slash tvlr to help us stay on the air and uh want to give one quick shout out to joe harrison he has been helping us on the youtube doing our clips doing the thumbnails and everything and uh give joe a round of applause Woo! he's been doing really really good we appreciate his help on the back end with those things um so folks that is it for us on the radio today but but if you find us online you can stay tuned for overtime you can stay tuned for Overtime, where we are going to talk to Dan DiMaggio from Labor Notes about GM workers in Mexico winning an independent union. We're going to be talking about Marco Rubio trying to reinstitute company unions in the United States. And we're going to get to a couple things that we missed about the legislative session and last week in Southern Labor, all in Overtime online. All power to the workers. We'll see you next week.